You are Locked On Hawks, your daily Atlanta Hawks podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 1012 of the Locked on Hawks podcast. I am your host, Brad Roland, coming to you on a Thursday evening. And today's show is brought to you by Stat Hero, the first ever daily fantasy sports book that gives the player the advantage. Go to stathero.com slash locked on for 300% back on your first play. Today's show will focus on myself and Ben Ladner, good friend of the podcast, talking about the Hawks Sixer series and more between game two and game three. Um, but of course, there's much more to come before I bring in Ben. And uh, first, I'll plug the emergency podcast that I did yesterday. Obviously, unfortunate circumstances with DeAndre Hunter being out for the season, but I jumped on quickly by myself for f- about 15 minutes or so. That is still on this feed, and that will sort of encompass my thoughts on Hunter and the absence there. And before that, I actually had two shows after game two. They are still relevant as well. So all that is still available to be listened to, downloaded, etc. And thank you as always for listening to the podcast. Some news to get on, to sort of get out of the way here before we get into the discussion with Ben. Uh, Summer League was already officially announced as happening, but now some more details came out on Wednesday. All 30 teams will be present in Las Vegas, and each will play at least five games. That was always the case with five games being guaranteed before this. But this time, the shorter turnaround of the entire tournament means that it cannot be more than five games. So there's no like run to the championship game this time around. Uh, every team will play five games. After the first four, the top two teams will play in the championship game, and that will be it. And that will be that. So uh, obviously, it's not really about wins and losses at that point in time. It's about development. And for the Hawks, if as long as everybody's healthy, I'd assume that Kongo will be there and Skylar Mays and uh, Nathan Knight, whoever they draft this year. Plenty of intrigue, and we'll, we'll cover that when it arrives in a couple of months. Uh, Clint Capella finished 6th in Defensive Player of the Year voting. That was announced on Wednesday night. I saw some Hawks fans frustrated by how low he was. I, I totally understand. I thought Clint's been awesome. I talked about that a lot. Uh, I would have had him as high as number 2 on my list, honestly. That's how good I think Clint was this year. I wasn't too surprised, though, that he was number 6. He was 3rd among centers. Uh, Rudy Gobert won the award. Bam Adebayo finished 4th. And uh, I guess Draymond was 3rd. And He definitely plays center at times. But um, Capella has a chance at all defensive teams. Second team. Uh, Gobert will be first team almost certainly. I think I would probably guess he, he doesn't make it, but although I would I would have had him and said as much on the second team All-NBA defense. But obviously a fantastic season, and he got one second-place vote and seven third-place votes, so there was some recognition there for Clint. Before we get to the rest of the pod, today on the road to the finals, our NBA playoff coverage is brought to you by Michelob Ultra. It's only worth it if you enjoy it. 95 calories, 2.6 carbs. We can all enjoy the games a little more this season. And uh, finally, before we get to Ben, the Hawks and Sixers, of course, will continue the series on Friday night with Game 3. Um, the Hawks, according to Bet Online and our friends there, are one-point underdogs for that game, even in their home building. So the Sixers are technically favored right now as I record this. But it's basically a coin flip, one-point game, all that stuff. Um, you know, the absence of Hunter looms large. Uh, as, as for the official injury reports, though, Joel Embiid, once again, listed as questionable. Now, I have to say, you know, we have to assume Embiid's going to play. He played a lot of minutes in Game 1, Game 2. He was awesome in those games. And uh, it will be a surprise to everyone if he does not play. But he is close to this questionable. That's uh, worth at least noting at this point in time. For the Hawks, uh, Hunter out, Reddish out, Goodwin out. Chris Dunn is actually off the injury report. Um, that's noteworthy. I'm not sure he was going to play, but that was at least one change between Game 2 and Game 3 is that he was actually out for Game 1 and 2 with non-COVID illness. So, again, I would guess that he does not play. But it's another guy the Hawks could go to if they absolutely had to. And Reddish is getting closer. McMillan talked to the media on Thursday and said Cam's been playing 3-on-3 and 4-on-4, but has yet to play 5-on-5. I would guess he's not going to be available to play in a game until he's playing 5-on-5. So whether that's Game 4 or not at all or whatever, uh, he's not going to be available for Game 3. He's ruled out, so keep that in mind for this game. Last thing. On the series, our friends at BetOnline also have a series price up for Hawks Sixers right now. And it is Philadelphia is minus 215, and Atlanta is plus 185 at that point in time. If you are not a gambling aficionado, I will break it down for you this way. The implied odds of that means that the line indicates Philadelphia having a 68% chance to win the series, which would put the Hawks at 32%. Obviously, I think it's probably a little bit closer than that, um, but Game 3 will be big. Uh, no question about it. If the Hawks were to win Game 3 and claim home court advantage still, and they, you know, right now they have it, which is worth pointing out after the split. But if they win Game 3, I think the series 
prices will shift back to like a coin flip scenario, maybe even the Hawks be slightly favored. If the Hawks were to lose Game 3, uh, they'll obviously be fighting an uphill battle. It won't be over by any stretch of the imagination, but Game 3 is a big one to swing perception and also you know all the projections and just the momentum of the series. So we'll get into that, obviously, after the game on Friday, but that's where we are right now perception-wise, and uh, a pretty big environment set for Friday in Atlanta. They're sold out already, as the Hawks announced on Thursday. Standing room only tickets still available, I believe, as, as I record this, but going to be a packed house at State Farm Arena on Friday, and it should be a lot of fun to cover that game. All right, before we get to Ben, a word from our sponsors on the podcast today, and the first of which is Stat Hero. Did you know that 85% of people who play daily fantasy sports lose? Is it really that surprising the game is rigged against you? You're playing against thousands of other lineups, not to mention experts who have more tools and more time. You don't stand a chance. Introducing Stat Hero. It's the first ever daily fantasy sports book that puts the player in control and winning within reach. Here's how it works. Stat Hero shows you the lineups and dares you to beat them. It's you against the house in a head-to-head fantasy matchup. You name your stakes, winner take all, you have the advantage. Stat Hero is showing you their lineups ahead of time and no one else does that. As someone who's not played DFS a ton, it was much easier to get into Stat Hero and quite honestly, I don't have a ton of time and that makes it a lot easier to digest something like this. Stat Hero makes it easy and puts you back in control. Stat Hero is DFS the way it's meant to be, one-on-one. Play Stat Hero now and change the odds. Go to stathero.com slash locked on, sign up for free, and right now you can get three times back on your first play. They're giving you a 300% match that is unheard of. Go to stathero.com slash locked on. stathero.com slash locked on. Today's show is also brought to you by the good folks at Built Bar. Built Bar is wonderful, as I always say on the podcast, but what is your favorite Built Bar flavor? Did you know that Built Bar has nine delicious flavors, plus the occasional limited time flavor? And when you talk about Built Bar, it's always a passionate thing for people that really enjoy their own flavors. And if you don't know the flavors, you're really missing out. It's coconut, coconut almond, cherry, raspberry, and many more. There's something for everyone, and my favorite flavor right now, anyway, I have many favorites, to be honest with you, but right now, I'm really loving the peanut butter brownie. That's just one that I'm really enjoying. I like to dive into that as much as possible. I always uh, talk about how much I enjoy Built Bar, and that is the one that I am diving into at this moment in time. If you haven't tried the flavors, though, get a mixed box right now where you get two of each of the nine available flavors at this moment in time. And not only are the Built Bar flavors fantastic, they're also very healthy. Most flavors have 17 grams of protein, 130 calories, only 4 grams of sugar, only 4 grams of net carbs, and a couple others have even more protein if you enjoy that kind of thing. Order today, get that raspberry, mint brownie, or whatever you would like, and if you do it in the near future, you go to BuiltBar.com, use the promo code LOCKED15, 15% off your first order with Built Bar. Use promo code LOCKED15, 15% off at BuiltBar.com. I am joined now by longtime friend of the podcast, what I would describe as a reformed Hawks beat writer. Ben Ladner's here. Hello, sir. How you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm well. Uh, thanks for doing this as always. And, you know, this is an interesting time for the Hawks and the NBA in general. You and I, we have not talked a lot about anything Hawks related recently, so I'm going to open this up by uh, just asking for your general thoughts. Obviously, the Hawks cruised past the Knicks, and now they're 1-1 with the Sixers as we record this, but uh, where are you at on the Atlanta Hawks right now as someone who used to cover them daily and now does not? That, now, that, now that they're much better. Uh, so th- thanks for that, Ben. Uh, I guess when you when you left the beat, they got a lot better, but here we are. You know, that that seems to happen. I've, I've been a beat writer at either the NBA or collegiate level for, I think, three years maybe four, and each of the teams I've covered has been bad. So I, I don't know what that says about me or <laughs> or the, the cosmic balance of, of the basketball universe, but that's the way it's shaken out. Um, no, I've been impressed with the Hawks really all season, and I think especially when they've been healthy, you know, they've been more or less the team that I kind of expected them to be, that I think we both kind of pegged them to be coming into the season. And, um, you know, when, when healthy, they're – they're really good. They're just a really solid all-around basketball team. The issue, obviously, now and you know the the entire year, has been that they haven't been healthy. And obviously, not having DeAndre Hunter for the rest of the season does not help that. Cam Reddish not seeming to be super close to coming back does not help that. Um, but I think Trey Young has acquitted himself very well in the playoffs. He he looks like every bit the the kind of offensive catalyst that you want to have in the postseason. Uh, and then the rest of the team around him, Bogdan Bogdanovich in particular, I think has has played pretty well. And and this isn't a team that, you know, looks overwhelmed by being in the postseason. That looks, you know, it's a young team, but it's it's not a team that looks they, they don't play young. You know, they they don't look overwhelmed by any of this. So I think from a, a long term standpoint, this this season is a nice stepping stone. It's a good building block. And I think in the short term, 
this is probably as much as Hawks fans could have realistically expected or hoped for coming into the year. And, you know, going up 1-0 on a potential finals uh Champ, potential cha- future champion and eventually being tied 1-1 with the 76ers. Like, that's not a bad place to be for a team that finds itself in the type of underdog position that Atlanta currently is. And, you know, we'll see what happens in Game 3. But I would say even if the Hawks don't take another game this series, they would have to feel fairly confident moving forward based on how this, this season shook out and, like I guess, what it told them about themselves, what it sort of augured for the future. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I feel like, you know... This series is far from over, and the Hawks have a chance to win it still, and they're still in. Uh, but but I agree. E- even if they, even if they you know fell apart at the seams here, which I'm not which I'm not projecting, but even if that happened, it would still be a successful season by really any any measure. So that's uh, sort of a nice backdrop to be in, a nice place to be, sort of that house money scenario. You can kind of play loose, and the Hawks have done that to your point a second ago. Um, I talked about Hunter a lot yesterday, but I wanted to ask you. You know, obviously he hasn't played in this series, so in terms of the matchup, we've kind of we've kind of now seen what's going to happen without him, at least for the most part. But uh, I guess how big of a loss is that in your mind? Because he had been playing um, obviously pretty well since, since returning and was a big part of the Knicks series, and also sort of as a bridge to, through that discussion, would you start Kevin Herter in Game Three? Because I think that's what uh, I I have called for, what many have called for, uh, just because he's clearly their best, well, I, guess, well, I guess their second best wing option behind Bogdanovich right now. I think so. The only issue would be Philly has Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris in its starting lineup, in addition to Joel Embiid, obviously. So you're might maybe a little bit thin, like physically thin in the starting lineup yep. if you go with Herter. And, and Solomon Hill has not been great this series or all season, but he at least gives you some bulk that you can use on one of those bigger guys like Simmons or Harris. But honestly, I mean, the, the, the trade-off you get offensively, I think, with Herter, with the playmaking and the shooting— probably outweighs that and you know if if Tobias Harris if the Sixers want to just dump the ball to Tobias Harris every time I think the Hawks can live with that because that's probably a value proposition that works in their favor because of what Herder's giving off Atlanta on the offensive end as far as Hunter I mean obviously he is that kind of big body that you would want against one of those bigger forwards so from that standpoint it's a it's a pretty big defensive loss in this series I also think given how often the Hawks have had to double-team Joel Embiid and send help in that direction, his length and size could have actually been pretty helpful in, in trying to do that. So you're not sending Trey Young or Kevin Herter or Bogdan Bogdanovich on a, on a double-team. It's DeAndre Hunter instead, which is not to say that you're you know, taking Embiid out of the series at that point, but just to have a little bit more size, a little bit more length, a little bit more rebounding, a little bit more shooting in the rotation, I think all of that would have been a nice thing to have in this series. Um, and, and yeah, I think Herter isn't going to re- give you what DeAndre Hunter was giving you, but he, he gives you more than Solomon Hill has been giving you, I guess. Uh, but it's, it's just a bummer from a, uh, from, you know, from a Hawks perspective, the Hunter news, just because of how well he played at the start of the season and all of the injury stuff he's had to deal with, with this meniscus all season long. And, you know, he, he looked good in the Knicks series and it's, it's just one of those injuries where, it, once it starts to swell up, once it starts to get bothered and it, it becomes increasingly damaged and, you know, it's just a shame for a guy who's kind of worked back from that injury already, who was having a good season, who could have really helped in this series to now have to shut it down. I think it's the right move. You don't want to sacrifice a guy's long-term health for a second round win in the playoffs. But um, from a short-term standpoint, it, it definitely hurts just to, to see, you know, even if the Hawks weren't going to win the series anyway, just to see, you know, what Trey and Hunter and, and Herter and, Bogdanovich and all these guys looked like together what that that group moving forward could have looked like now getting that experience together I think not a huge long-term setback but but definitely something like a a data sample you would have liked to have had and you know it's it's not like the Hawks are going to have to make some big adjustment in this series because like you said they haven't had Hunter in the first two games so um, they can more or less kind of carry on as they have been but but now I guess there's just there's not really that carrot of well, maybe this guy comes back, maybe we get him into the lineup, get some more shooting and defense. Um, so it's just a bummer to see a guy lose the season like that. But I don't think it materially changes their outlook for this series. Yeah, it would have been nice to have him. Clearly, they would have been in a better position to win the series if he was able to play in Game 3 and beyond. 
Um, that's not breaking anybody's, uh, not breaking any news for anybody. But um, you know, we saw them win a game without him, and they're certainly capable of hanging around. And to your point about Herter and the lack of size, like that, that is almost certainly the reason why he has not started already. Uh, McMillan is definitely someone who likes to have a little bit of bulk, and also he is big into keeping guys in their roles and in their combinations. He he likes to lean on that. Now that is an excuse that's going to fly. I don't think in Game Three when uh, when it went so poorly with Solomon Hill in Game Two, and I am I'm pro Solomon Hill, but it's t- it's tough to watch him not be guarded in this series. That's really the bigger issue. Like defensively, Solomon Hill's totally fine. He's in the right place at the right time. He's big and physical, but offensively, it's just really hard to play a uh, a non-entity offensively. Um, he he got up seven threes in Game One, but in Game Two, he just wasn't being guarded at all, and that that's kind of tough. So um, I guess it's a good bridge to talk about the offense for a second. Um, which is the more encouraging side of the ball, I would imagine, overall. Uh, what have you made of the offensive side uh, in this series so far? You know, Trey was really good in Game 1, less good in Game 2. But just, I guess, what is the outlook for you in terms of the Hawks trying to score? What should they be doing differently? Like, I guess, overall thoughts on that side of the ball. Yeah, well, I think big picture, they're going to be able to get good shots in this series. That was one thing I wondered about coming in. Are they going to get the same kind of shots they got in game one? Probably not, because I think putting Ben Simmons on Trey Young is a real significant change for Philly. Like, Danny Green is just not good enough. He's not quick enough to guard Trey Young in the series. Ben Simmons probably is, and we saw that in game two. So that that puts a little bit of a damper on the Hawks' offense, but I still think they're going to get a lot of threes. They're going to get alley-oops. Trey's going to get his floaters. They're going to be able to create decent shots. The question, as it always is in the playoffs, is you know, can they sustain a a passable percentage on those shots? You know, because shooting variance is just so important in today's NBA in a playoff series because you can play well, you can create all the good shots you want, and if you miss them, then you lose. And, you know, conversely, if you get hot and you, you go, I don't know, 15 of 25 from three, even if you're not getting up a lot of high-quality shots, if you make the ones you get, you win. And, you know, if you're on the wrong end of that, you can play good defense and still lose. So... Shooting variance, I think, has been a theme of, of these playoffs. And and the Hawks got some some decent shooting in, in the first game and some less decent shooting in the second. But more or less, it's kind of been around that, you know, 38 to 42 percent mark for, for most of the playoffs, really. Um, and I think they can continue creating good shots. I I would expect the shot quality to maybe decline as as the series goes on. Although I guess in game three, like the Hawks are going to figure things out against Philly's defense, just as Philly's defense figured things out against the Hawks. Um, I think ultimately the Sixers defense is probably too good for the Hawks to get like just wide ass open looks constantly, <laughs> like just continue getting to the rim like they did in game one. I think that game is probably the outlier of this series if we're projecting forward. But I don't think game two is necessarily representative of how the rest of the series is going to go either. So probably somewhere in the middle of those two things. The bigger thing is just the, the defense. Like, even if the Hawks are able to score at a pretty decent rate in this series, which I think they can, defensively they just have no answer for Embiid. They're they're not able to just deal with the amount of threats that Philly has offensively, which isn't a ton, but when you consider that Embiid is so, so frequently drawing two defenders and Tobias Harris is kind of a matchup problem for this team without DeAndre Hunter and Seth Curry seems to just be getting all the open threes he he wants. Um, offensively, the Sixers just seem to be like on the verge of a breakthrough if they haven't reached it already. You know, so so that's I think the bigger worry for Atlanta and probably the side of the ball that's going to hurt them most in this series. Uh, but offensively, I, I I think somewhere between what we saw in Game One and Game Two is probably reasonable to expect, um, and that's probably enough to hang in the series. I don't think that's going to you know, just I don't think it's going to be a gentleman's sweep. It could, but I don't think that's going to be just a, you know, a formula for getting run over in the next three games. But yeah, um, ultimately, it probably does work in Philadelphia's favor. Yeah, I think, you know, no one could expect the Hawks to shoot 20 of 47 from three, both in makes and attempts. Uh, that was not going to sustain. And we said that after game one, and you know, that, that happened and Trey was magnificent and they took they took full advantage, not only just making a ton of shots, but just getting a lot of good looks in game one and fully adjusted. And now you'll see what the Hawks do in response. And basically any playoff series, uh, but especially a potentially long playoff series, there's just so many counter adjustments that happen along the way. And there's an ebb and flow that this things that just, ha- that just taps- that has to happen. And we'll see what the Hawks can come up with in game three to kind of free themselves offensively. I maintain the Hawks played well enough to win offensively in game two. 
short of the turnovers. The turnovers were the were really the damning part of that performance, yeah. and that that hurts. And that's one that's one thing. The Hucks are, were actually a top ten team this year in ball security, and if they don't turn it over, there's a real path to good offense in this series. And because even with turnovers, until the garbage time in the fourth quarter, they were scoring enough to win. But those turnovers led to some live ball stuff, and they're already in a, in a not a, not necessarily bad, but a questionable position defensively in this series where. You know, it's tough. They're going to have to take care of the ball, at least get shots to the rim, maybe offensive rebound a little bit, maybe even less. I actually wanted to ask you about that on the offensive glass because one of the theories that I heard, I think it was Nate Duncan, somebody in, somebody in the basketball media kind of just said, like, stop trying offensive rebound in this series and just get back because transition defense has been such a mess for the Hawks. And that, that, that wouldn't solve everything. And Clint Capella is, you know, one of his big values is on the offensive glass. But I wonder if it's like everyone but Clint, just get back at this point, uh, get shots up, and then uh, try to shore up your defense. I don't know. Yeah, and maybe you even want Capella getting back on defense, too, because he's kind of your only—I guess Collins, but those are really your only two big bodies that are going to be playing significant minutes in this series that can do anything about a transition rush, you know? So if Ben Simmons is barreling downhill, there's nothing to stop him from getting a dunk unless you just sink everybody into the lane, and then he's kicking out for threes. So maybe you want one of your big guys back in transition to try to take that away, and I think statistically— the, the game two numbers would definitely back up the idea that, that the Hawks should tr- prioritize transition defense over the offensive glass. Philly killed them in transition. That was a big part of their offensive attack. And, and you know, the turnovers don't help with that either because typically live ball turnovers are going to lead to transition opportunities for the opponent. So that's that was a source of offense for Philly. You don't expect their transition to be quite as good if Atlanta's turning the ball over less. But definitely when you're when you're chasing offensive rebounds and you're going after that, and making that a priority, you're committing more guys to that end of the floor. Now there are fewer guys on the other side of half court, and then your transition defense is weakened. And and especially because Philly does play so big, and they're such a good defensive rebounding team, it's it's not like a, a huge, you know, the likelihood of, of adding a lot of value there is not super high because Joel Embiid is going to get a ton of defensive rebounds. Tobias Harris, Ben Simmons, you know, even Danny Green's like a pretty decent rebounding guard or has been in his career. So Philly's not necessarily the team that you want to be attacking the offensive glass against because more often than not, they're going to get the defensive rebound and then you've wasted your effort on the glass and now you're at a disadvantage. So yeah, that that's one thing. And then the other thing I think is offensively, I think Nate Duncan also mentioned this, so apologies for just parroting uh, his entire Come on, list of talking points. Um, but, but setting better screens offensively for Atlanta, like in game one, they didn't have to do that as much because... Trey could just beat Danny Green off the dribble, but Ben Simmons is a different animal. He's bigger, he's quicker, he's he's stronger, he's faster. So you really do need to set a, a good screen and make contact on that screen to get Trey more separation because he just wasn't able to turn the corner in game two like he was in game one. And then when it, when Joel Embiid is waiting, like when you're sandwiched by Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid, it's really hard to do anything from that position Whereas if you can get ahead of your defender, whether it's Simmons or Thibel or whoever, if you can get a step on that guy and now you're going downhill less, um, I guess, less bothered by that defender, now you can do a little bit more. Now you're forcing the big into a little bit more of a, a compromised position and he has to really make a decision. He can't he can't play that cat and mouse game as easily. He has to commit to either you or the rim and then you just make the read from there. But if you can't get that initial separation on the screen – then then you're just not compromising the defense as much. And then there's just less space to work with in general. So that's that's another thing I think Atlanta can do a little bit better. And then, like you said, just tightening up the turnovers. Like Herder for as well as he played the rest of the game and, you know, came out on fire, obviously was hitting threes. I thought his playmaking was good. But I think he had four turnovers in game two as well. And that's just not something you can afford from your backup two guard in this kind of game. So you know, you want to keep making those high value passes. You want to keep pressing your advantages when you can, but certainly taking care of the ball is an area where the Hawks could do a much better job. And that's not easy against Philly because they have good defenders. They're able to force turnovers when they want to. But, you know, we saw it at the end of game one as well, like just ball security under pressure can be a problem at times for Atlanta. And, and Philly has learned that if they dial up the pressure, they can force a lot of those turnovers.
Yeah, and to your point, McMillan actually talked about the screen setting uh, today to the media. I think I saw it from Kevin Schnard. Actually, it wasn't on today because I was uh, doing day job stuff. But, yeah, McMillan said that they needed to set better screens and that he didn't think they did a good job of screen setting in the game in Game 2. So that, you know, coming straight from the horse's mouth. And uh, McMillan's not always going to reveal everything. He's pretty close to the vest. But for him to say that out loud, it was pretty clear that he did not love the screen setting in uh, in Game 2. Before we get to the defensive side, I do want to ask you about that. A word from our sponsors on today's podcast. Lucid Nicotine is a company founded by contact scientists former smokers looking for a better and cleaner nicotine alternative. Researched and developed for three years to be made for people, not for patients, Lucy has created a nicotine gum with four milligrams of nicotine that comes in three flavors, wintergreen, cinnamon, and pomegranate. Also, Lucy has a lozenge with four milligrams of nicotine that comes in three more flavors, cherry ice, citrus, and mint. Lucy lozenges and gums are both FSA and HSA eligible. You can use your FSA cards to purchase Lucy right now, and it's convenient and discreet for you. Products can be enjoyed anywhere, on flights, at work, on the go, or even in the gym. It is 2021 after all. You can get rid of your cigarettes, unplug your vape, throw out your dip, and get some Lucy nicotine gum or lozenges. This is the real deal. A subscription to Lucy comes directly to your door each month. It's so simple, you don't have to leave your house to get it, because Lucy has delivery down. Locked on NBA Network listeners can go to lucy.co, use the promo code LOCKEDONNBA for 20% off all products on your first order, including gum or lozenges. That is lucy.co, use the promo code LOCKEDONNBA at checkout. Also, this disclaimer I have to give, warning, this product contains nicotine derived from tobacco. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. lucy.co, and be sure to use that promo code LOCKEDONNBA. All right, Ben, uh, we talked about defense for a second earlier, but clearly... It's a it's a bigger concern than the offense, at least for me. It sounds like for you as well. Is there anything the Hawks can do to not let Joel Embiid annihilate them? And if the answer is no, do you just go into the go into the game basically just kind of letting Joel cook and trying to have that be what happens and just like all right, Joel, go get go get forty and we'll just guard everybody else because that's that's a popular theory and one that I don't hate, but it's not one that you obviously love when it's like. When your baseline projection is all right, Joel, go score, go score forty five. You you don't love that necessarily. Can they sign Mark Gasol? Is that is that an option? He would be the uh, he would be the best possible. Because uh, listen, I mean, I'm not. I've, I've been very 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 complimentary of Clint Capella this year. I think he's been incredible. This is a bad matchup for, for Clint Capella. He's not he's not having a lot of fun through two games. Yeah, a few problems with with um with kind of what you laid out there. Like you said, Capella, this is he's a wonderful defender, but this isn't his game. You yeah. know, he's a weak side rim protector. He's a help defender. He wants to to be on the back line and be able to make plays off the ball and, and then meet the ball when it comes to the rim. Man-to-man defense, post-defense, especially against really big guys like Embiid, is just not his game. And that's, you know, it's almost hard to fault him, even though technically he is the one getting cooked. It's, it's almost hard to blame him necessarily because— it's one of those things where you're just asking him to do something that, that he doesn't do particularly well. The other thing is, is you mentioned uh, sort of, well, you let Joel get 40 and then you just take away the other guys. The problem is Embiid got 40 in the first two games and they were still trying to take away the other guys. So my worry is if you say we're just going to let Embiid cook, he might end up with like 60, you know, and then that's something you probably can't overcome. So it, it's kind of one of those deals where even when you're trying to kind of split the difference and, you know, we're going to double Embiid and we're going to, you know, let the other, you know, make the other guys beat us or whatever. He still gets 40, you know, so I, I just, yeah, I worry if, if you're saying, well, we're just not going to let the other guys beat us. Maybe Embiid just beats you on his own anyway, because he's been that dominant. The, the big stat that stands out to me from this series is Philly shot 24 of 29 at the rim in game one. And they shot 17 of 21 at the rim in game two. Now, obviously, reducing the number of attempts in game two was good. Philly did take more threes, which is not ideal for for Atlanta because they're a decent three-point shooting team. But it just feels like the Sixers, and Embiid in particular, are able to get to the rim whenever they want. I mean, Embiid had that one ridiculous play where he got the ball on the left block and basically just pushed Clint Capella out of the way and dunked it right after Capella put one down on his head. And it just feels like he could do that whenever he wants to, you know, and, and, you know, it, it's, there's the theory of, of like, well, if you're going to double him, you might as well put a weaker defender on him because you're bringing two guys to the ball anyway, but he's just so big and so strong that like he can go through two guys, especially if they're not your, your biggest guys, he can just go through them and he's still going to score anyway. So I don't really know what you do with him. I, I, I just think this is a bad matchup for Atlanta and, you know, maybe Nate McMillan can pull something out of his, out of his pocket and, 
come up with a strategy to to kind of mitigate him. But you know, Embiid's really improved as a passer, and and Seth Curry is a knockdown shooter. Danny Green historically has been a really good shooter. Tobias Harris is capable of doing that. I guess the one thing they could do is you help really aggressively on Embiid. You double him in the post, and you just don't let Seth Curry shoot. Like you, you say, the guy we're going to leave open is Ben Simmons or Tobias Harris or whoever it is. Matisse Thybul, That that's, I mean, when he's in the game, that's another big one. I mean, they need to make Philly's shooters, or I'm sorry, Philly's non-shooters shoot. And I think they could be a little bit better about being selective about who they leave open because there were just too many times in the first two games where Seth Curry is standing with no one within six feet of him and he's shooting a three. You know, so I think the doubling strategy can work. You just have to be smarter about how you double, where you double from, and who that leaves open. But, of, of course, there's always just the possibility that even if you double, even if you triple, you could quadruple team Joel Embiid, and he still might score on you. Yeah, and that's obviously, you know, he's really good, and that's what it comes down to. I mean, I mean maybe there's a chance he's not physically himself, and you're never rooting for that, but that's in play in this series potentially. You know, with Embiid, he's playing a lot of minutes, and he's still listed as questionable. Like, I rolled my eyes when I saw that he was listed as questionable, but he does have an injury. Uh, it could flare up. It could, it could swell up. I have no idea what's going to happen there. But maybe he's just limited, like, 10, 10%, but it's just hard to – see them stopping him for any length of time so it's just how bad will the damage get one of the one of the popular ideas is uh maybe going a little bit smaller and doubling like you mentioned like maybe using gallo um who's not a great defender by any means but gallo is strong and smart and he might draw a couple charges on Embiid. and if you're going to go ahead and double anyway to your point uh it's not it's not a panacea but you, you could um try to play Gallo more at f- Gallo slash Collins more at the five double and then try to outscore him. And that's not a great idea either necessarily, but you have to pick something. You have to pick an avenue to go down. And, you know, it's not always just the entire game of that. Maybe Millen, I'm sure, has a couple of wrinkles to throw at Embiid. But it's it's probably fair to say that they, they did a lot of stuff to try to slow him in the first two games, and he still averaged, what, 39 a game. It's, uh, it's hard. Like, there's no especially now that it's pretty clear Capella is not going to be able to just stop him one-on-one or even, even contain him one-on-one. That, that was option number one. They tried that. It's not gone very well. And they don't have, you know, Marcus Gasol or anything approaching that on the bench they could, they, they could throw out there. Like, Boban's not walking through that door. They don't, they don't have, like, another massive human being to throw out there just to get in his way. So it's not the entire series, but if Embiid averages 39 game in the series, you're not going to win it, most likely. Yeah, and I think a lot of the theory of the Hawks defense against Embiid was sort of contingent upon him not being healthy. You know, it's like, well, if, you know, if the knee is bothering him, maybe we can make him defend in space a little bit more. We can, you know, make him catch the ball. Like, yeah, exactly. In game one, but he's looked great. You know, like he physically, he looks amazing. And, And so I think a lot of the, a lot of the strategy around like, well, let's, let's test his mobility. Let's, let's maybe make him catch the ball farther out on the floor bring him double teams, just make him move a little bit more. Not that you're trying to injure the guy, like no. you said, but um, just the idea that we're going to test his his mobility. We're going to, like, make him move. And they, know, and they the should. That, I mean, that's right. – it's not like – again, you're, no one's rooting for him to get injured, but you have to make the guy work. Right. Um, and, and by the way, you would want to do that even if he was 100% healthy. You would want to tire and beat out, if nothing else, because exactly. if he's going to be able to play 42 minutes or whatever, he's. I mean, obviously he's not, he's not got, quite got to there, but we've seen the Hawks, this is not breaking news, but have a lot better chance to make runs if MB is on the bench. And he has to sit at some point, but the more he sits, the better off the Hawks are. It's just the way it is. Foul trouble, right. whatever it needs to be, like... If you get Embiid three thousand in the first half, that'd be huge. Like there's there's a there are ways to attack it, but if he's out there, he's just been cooking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Make him do the stuff that he might not be able to do at his usual level. And the issue for the Hawks, of course, has been that he looks like Joel Embiid. He he's been the best player in the series. He looks amazing. His his moves offensively, his mobility defensively, like everything. He just looks like a healthy dominant center. And yep. if that's the case, like you know, it's it's. I don't want to be the guy who's like, well, you know, that's it's as simple as that. There's nothing you can do, but it might be as simple as that. And and the only thing the Hawks maybe can do is just Trey Young plays really well. I mean, it's like at some point you run out of strategic or tactical stuff. And it's just a matter of like, do your players play well enough to overcome this other guy playing really well? And and that may be the case. Like maybe Trey Young averages 40 for the rest of the series. Maybe Bogdan Bogdanovich shoots 45 percent over the next five games or whatever it is. Um, but I think barring that the Hawks are not going to have the best player in this series. That's 
and, and it might not even be close. Um, and if, if that's the case, and if Embiid is just able to keep doing this and there's nothing on the Hawks to be able to balance that out, then, you know, that might be the series right there. Yeah, it might be. Um, short of Embiid, is there anything else that concerns you? I think you mentioned Seth Curry. That's a guy, I've mentioned this before, but he's the only guy on the roster for Philly that you just cannot lose. And they have lost him more than you would like in transition in, in particular. That's been frustrating to me because... Obviously, there are guys on the, on, this, on the scene that can shoot. You know, Tobias Harris is a good shooter. Uh, you know, Cork Maz. There are guys on this roster that can definitely shoot. Danny Green's even a decent shooter usually. He's not been in the series. But Seth Curry is, is a tier or two above those guys, and he's the one guy you can't leave. So that's something to keep an eye on. But any, anything else that you're looking at defensively that's, that's not directly re- uh, revolving around Embiid? Yeah, well, I touched on it earlier. I think just, you know, make guys like Thibel, Ben Simmons, when he doesn't have the ball, Dwight Howard, like make those guys liabilities. I think the Hawks could do a better job of leaving them open, making them shoot, um, putting pressure on them when they do have the ball, forcing them into some mistakes. You know, Danny Green is another guy like this. Like expose some of those guys' limitations offensively because I don't think they've done a great job of that in this series. And I think that's kind of the the formula. You know, if you accept the fact that, okay, Embiid's just going to get 40 on us, it is what it is. What else can you do? And I think the answer is, you know, just exploit the weaknesses, the the specific weaknesses of the other personnel around him. I I think that's probably step one. You know, Tobias Harris has only shot five threes in this series, and he's one of five. So I don't know. I mean, he's a good shooter, but I wonder if making him be more of a three-point shooter instead of a a guy who can just comfortably get to his spots, get to the rim, things like that. Because I think quietly he's been really good in each of these games. He's been really efficient, you know, scoring at a decent volume. But he's not doing it from three, so maybe you just you force him out of his comfort zone just a little bit, um, and then not leaving Seth Curry open. Obviously, that's a big one. Um, I think I think the other key is going to be not helping up your teammates right into Joel Embiid and and getting a technical foul. <laughs> that might help, um, yeah. although that didn't swing game two or anything. But well, listen, I mean they they were very close to Embiid being ejected. Like they were probably like one more gesture away from Embiid being ejected. You know, um, I, I said this to, to a friend. I, I texted this to a friend at the time. Um, like I think technically, I'm not I'm not advocating that this should have happened, but I think technically they could have ejected Embiid because isn't punching the air like an automatic tech? Isn't it's, that supposed it's, to be? It's supposed to be, yeah. So I, he gets the tech and then he punches the air in reaction to the tech, which again, I'm glad Joel Embiid stayed in the game. I don't want to see him get tossed from a playoff game. He's the best player in the series. But technically, like, and especially given who was refereeing the game, Scott Foster and Tony Brothers, not exactly uh, guys known to give players a lot of leeway with that. So I was almost like, I was kind of asking, like, are they going to toss Embiid for that? And, and I'm glad they didn't, but I, like, uh, you yeah. could make the case that by the letter <laughs> of the law, that should have been what happened. Yeah, I mean, I, I talked about this, this with a few people during the game, you know, a couple just, you know, straight Hawks fans and some people in the media and uh not unsurprisingly, Hawks fans wanted him to be ejected, and and they should. I mean, the best the best way for the Hawks to win that game would have been Joel Embiid being ejected. Uh, as a more more unbiased observer, I didn't want him to be tossed. You know, you you want you want to win the game against their best, uh, right? And that would have been a weird way to win. Um, and you know all that stuff, but just I guess just getting him getting him off uh, off his game a little bit would be interesting, and maybe being uh, you know Gallo could be annoying. Uh, that's not the first time there was a dust up in, in the first series. Reg, Reggie Bullock clearly, clearly did not enjoy the work of Gallo in the first series. Maybe Gallo is just like one of those guys, and uh, I appreciate about that about him. Um, before we get out of here, I want to ask you like both for the series and for Game Three, like what's what's success look like for for the Hawks? Like what what is their path if you had to pick one or two things that if this goes well, the Hawks have a really good chance uh, both in the next game and overall. I think getting back closer to that Game One offense, not in terms of the three point shooting or just the you know scorching start they got off to, but just the process behind it. No pun intended. Getting <laughs> Trey downhill, letting him get into that float range where he's been really good. Just freeing up some more open shots. Obviously, the Sixers did a great job closing some of those gaps in Game 2. But I, I wonder if the Hawks can reopen them a little bit and, and just find more cracks in that defense, do a better job of that. Maybe that's an area where putting Herter in the starting lineup does help you, and now you have another playmaker on the floor. That's one. I I just I don't know what the answer is with Embiid, so I wish I could give a specific thing of what success looks like there. No, no, one, no one does. I mean, I, I've literally asked everyone between the podcast and mostly offline, and— people that I think are very smart and 
no one no one has a good answer for what to do against Embiid. They have ideas, and we thought we tossed around a few on this podcast. But if it was simple, they would do it. And there isn't a simple way, short of just hoping that Embiid has a bad game. I don't know. Yeah, and maybe maybe matchup hunting is another thing they could do offensively, and that kind of goes hand in hand with the screen setting, where if you make solid contact, you force the switch. Like Philly does not want to switch when Trey Young has the ball, but if you set a good screen, sometimes they have to switch. And then maybe that's a situation where you can get Danny Green on Trey. You can get Tobias Harris on Trey. You can you can match up hunt just a little bit more. I actually think Philly could do a better job of that too against Trey Young. It's something neither they nor uh, the Knicks did in either of the two rounds so far. Um, so short of that, you know, I think, look, I mean, the Hawks are an underdog in this series. They're a big underdog. So, I mean, success, obviously success looks like winning but i think for that to happen they're going to need some luck they're going to need more luck than the sixers will need to win this series they're going to need more hot shooting they're going to need more cold shooting from the sixers than the sixers will need from the hawks you know like they're going to need a lot of things to just go their way in this series because both teams at full strength both teams operating at peak capacity the sixers are the better team in this series the hawks are going to lose if 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 both teams are playing as well as they can um, and that's just kind of, you know, that's that's how it goes. They're seated the way they are for a reason. They had the regular seasons they had for a reason. Um, but I think, again, especially without Hunter, like if you're saying what does success look like putting aside wins and losses, which are kind of the obvious definition, um, I think just finding a good theory behind the offense, finding, you know, find just finding ways to to, to score in a versatile way, I guess, to, to get several of your threats involved, several of your threats going, and then just discovering some theory for defending Embiid, even if it doesn't work particularly well, if you can just find something that you're like, okay, yeah, that that works decently, we can try that moving forward. And it still might not work, but if you can find like the lesser of all evils in that situation, I think that would be a, a win as well. Yeah, and uh, this is just one thing. And you know, to your point about you know the Sixers being favored in the series, that's definitely the case. You'll get the, you'll get the betting market and all that, and especially without Hunter, the Hawks. Um, I think I I've, I thought the whole time that the Hawks were closer to Philly than a lot of people did. But if you remove Hunter and everything else, the Hawks having the home court advantage, I guess, is at least a slight help there as well. But I wonder if they just will pull out some of those like high variance high variance strategies. Like, you know, trying to take more threes is obviously a good thing in general, but like maybe even hacking Ben Simmons. Like they did it a yeah. little bit. They did it in the, but they did it when they were already like, w- you know, way behind in game two. And it was kind of a desperation move. And it made sense to do it. But I wonder if that's like a, a more frequent thing. Um, no one likes to watch that, but if you do the math on it, it's not the worst idea. As long as you don't burn fouls on guys that need to, that you don't want to burn fouls on. So maybe they literally bring in bench guy X to foul Ben Simmons considerably in the first half. Like they, they might even try that and see if you can get Doc to come off the court, if nothing else. Like that kind of stuff is what you do when you're supposed to be the underdog in a series. It doesn't have to be hacking, but you know, if you acknowledge and maybe they don't maybe they maybe the Hawks don't think this. But I think on the outside, most people think the Hawks are the underdog in the series for a reason. And um that's again just one example, but maybe you try to get creative and do some stuff to put the math in your favor. Have we finally found a role for Solomon Hill? I mean, I, listen. This is a pro Solomon Hill podcast. Uh, I wish, I wish he could shoot a little better because if he could shoot open threes, that's all you need from him. He just doesn't have to be guarded. That's unfortunate. But yes, yeah. I mean, even yeah, even a guy might further down, um, maybe Tony Snell, like because Tony Snell doesn't actually has to be guarded, and you could have him out there and on offense, you could play Tony Snell on offense, and then you could just have him commit uh, commit a few fouls on Ben Simmons. And by the way. It doesn't always have to be pure hacking. Like there, there are there are ways to do hack a blank player that doesn't have to be like the pure one. Like you could wait till Simmons gets the ball, like, and do it that way. You don't have to do the off ball like madness hacking stuff. I don't know. It's just an idea, and it's one that if the Hawks are losing in the second half, they absolutely full on should do it. And I'm I I, I do think that, but it might be a broader idea to do it more early because. As much as it's not fun to watch, Ben Simmons is so in his head at the line right now that it's it's got to be a plus move with the math. Like how as as bad as he's shooting at the free throw line, it's just worth exploring. I'll say that. Yeah. Well, speaking of fouls, one thing I wanted to ask you is we have obviously two of the preeminent like BS foul drawers in this series. <laughs> Who do you think that favors? Because I mean, obviously Embiid has taken I think thirty one free throws. Trey's taken I think eighteen. Um, but who like who? Because I tend to think that that all kind of cancels out. Like the Sixer fans complain a lot about, oh, that's a phantom foul. 
that Trey drew, and the Hawks fans will say Embiid drew a phantom foul. I tend to think that kind of cancels out, but have have you noticed that, like, I guess just the, the BS fouls working in any team's favor? Um, I don't know. It's interesting to me, like, I think game two, Hawks fans were upset because Embiid, at one point, maybe even for the whole game or close to it, had taken more throws than the entire Hawks team, and that, that, that just looks bad, and I get why. But also, you, if you were trying to watch it like, sort of objectively, you would understand that he's most of those fouls are, are fouls. Like, uh, and same with Trey. Like, Trey is really good at drawing them, but most of the time, the stuff Trey, done, stuff Trey does is real. Like, they, they, the fouls are actually occurring, letter of the law. Um, I, I think in general, if the series is called tighter in terms of the whistle, like, you know, more whistles, that's probably good for the Hawks because Philly is yeah. bigger and more physical, particularly with, like, on, on, on defense, we saw at the end, I mean, game one was like an outlier at the end, but they have those guys, like, particularly Simmons and Tybal, who are really, really ball-hawking guys, and they're bigger and they're, and they're more physical than the Hawks are, at least without Hunter. So I, I think a, a tight whistle would actually help the Hawks overall in the series. Now, Embiid might have 50 if that happens, but Trey also would benefit from it, and I think in general um, it would lean a little bit in Atlanta's direction, but I think it's probably overblown overall just in general i think the one thing though is foul trouble has been like a part of the series but it's not been a massive part of the series um and i think the guys who really 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 cannot get in foul trouble the list is not that long i mean of the guys who would like ma- make a massive impact if they were in foul trouble I-, I i thought early in the series it might be capella like the hawks couldn't afford and not have capella on the floor and now I don't know if that's true. <laughs> they might actually be better off playing small. I'm not saying that's definitely the case, but I don't know. Short of Embiid getting in foul trouble, he's kind of the only guy in the series where I would be like, that. that's like a series swinging thing, a game, sw- game swinging thing if he's actually in, like has three fouls in the first quarter. Because, you know, Trey obviously would be a big one, but he's not going to foul out of the game most likely. So right. it's, I don't know. In general, tighter whistle, I think, leans to the Hawks. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think the, the only time we've really seen foul trouble be an issue is with Simmons in, in game one where they I think oh, clearly yeah, it was yeah. their strategy to they're going to switch the matchup put Simmons on Trey Young that's their their plan and he picks up two I think technically fouls but but ticky tack fouls um they were not very like happy about early, that. <laughs> early in game three and then they they couldn't go to that strategy because Simmons was was fouling him too much and obviously there were the comments of like oh if they're going to let me guard him then I'll guard him which I don't even want to get into those but like no. That that's where I think, yeah. That that's I think the one time we've seen foul trouble really be a big issue. But I agree. I think it sort of brings the teams closer together if it's a tighter called series because it kind of mitigates some of Philly's physicality advantages. Yeah, uh, and that's you know it's, it's full circle to earlier in our conversation about the turnovers. If the Hawks are turning the ball over, particularly live ball, they're almost dead in the water, and we saw that in Game Two. So. Uh, ball security plays into that. Like if, if Philly's allowed to play physically and get away with some of those steals and Simmons and, you know, Simmons and Tyler are two of the more habit creating defenders in the entire league in terms of that kind of opportunistic stuff. And if they are both allowed to have kind of have free reign, that's not good for the Hawks in general. Um, so yeah, I mean, we'll see. I, I agree though. If, if Simmons got in foul trouble, that would certainly help the Hawks because he is clearly their best option against Trey. Um, we saw that now through two games and uh, the Hawks best, dream would be a situation where they have to play Danny Green straight up. Now, we, we did see, to be at least somewhat fair to Danny Green, we saw them play with Green on Trey at least a little bit in Game 2, but they just kind of treated him differently. They had him beat showing, and they, it wasn't like traditional drop. Um, yeah. Because I, I, were you going nuts as a, as a neutral observer watching them, watching them play with Danny Green and, and Embiid in deep drop in the first half it of was Game 1? every time. <laughs> I couldn't understand. I mean, I mean, they even they, they, they admitted after the game they were giving up everything yeah i mean they were giving up the floater they were there giving were no up the lob they were giving up the kick out three i mean they weren't taking away any of it which i mean like good for the Hawks. i get it trey young's hard to guard but but geez you know yeah it's one of those things where uh the, the basketball analyst part of your brain is just like what is happening here like you have to make a plan i mean we, we talked about it with mb but you have to try to take something away it yeah. may not work but you have to make a decision somewhere along the way with mb maybe you want to make him a jump shooter or what whatever it's going to be and with Trey in game one in the first half, like he he literally had the uh, the buffet in front of him. He could have done anything he wanted, and that's not a good that's not a good idea. Unless you're unless you're a Hawks fan, because then you obviously would enjoy that. Um, well, Ben, thank you for joining me for all this time, man. Uh, if you have anything else you want to add, please please feel free to do so. But if not, 
please plug your stuff. I, I saw you wrote, you, you wrote about the Bucks this week. I know the Bucks are playing as we speak right now on Thursday, but I did. Um, yeah, Bucks fans might not want to read it. Well, listen, they've got off to a hot start. This is gonna this is gonna bite me. We're recording this at like eight p.m. and the Bucks lead thirty to nine. So if they lose game three up thirty to nine, uh, we could all go home at that point. But uh, <laughs> things are going things are going much better for the Bucks tonight as as, as we speak. Again, this is gonna sound hilarious when they, when they lose and people listen to this tomorrow morning. But um, yeah, that was a good piece, which I enjoyed. But anything else Thank you, you. want to plug, share? Yeah, uh, you can listen to the Read and React podcast wherever you get podcasts. Um, usually two, three times a week, um, maybe even more than that during the the playoff time of the year. But yeah, we're basically just going in depth on. Right now, it's kind of just each playoff series because of of how concentrated all of that is this time of year. But um, if you want some some good just general NBA analysis, that might be a good place to find it. Like you said, I'm writing for the Step Back, doing a weekly column that comes out on Thursdays, so people can keep their eyes peeled for that. Um, yeah, I don't mean to be too dismissive of the Bucks. It's it's I'm <laughs> I'm always like the last person to come around among all of my my friends who talk about basketball. I'm always the last person to come around and proclaim a team to be finished you know I'm, I'm always holding on to that last thread of hope um because we've seen teams come back from 0-2 before and 3-1 and so i'm generally pretty lenient on that stuff but but yeah i've not been encouraged by what i've seen from milwaukee although like you said nice start in in the first quarter of this one we'll see how much uh, that continues i obviously have not seen any of the game yet but i will well yeah, and i've only been like very 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 uh tangentially watching but i will i will give you one number right now okay we are 11 plus minutes into the game in bucks nets again this is this is great radio i know uh they're the nets are four of 23 from the floor they have nine points seems bad and that's the brooklyn nets the number one offense in the league so that's uh uh again i will not not have claimed to see every possession because i've been talking to you but uh pretty pretty interesting uh stat line that i've seen do you think that's sustainable is that a sustainable rate i would say probably not for the nets uh KD one of six, Joe Harris oh three. Yeah, it's not really gonna continue. Has but Giannis less. taken a shot at the rim? That's really my big question. Uh, he has taken two threes, but he's seven of ten from the floor. So I can only assume at least okay. one of those was at, was at the rim in the first quarter. Good. So we uh, we've woken Giannis up. He has one. He has one of five at the free throw line and airballed one earlier that I saw. I'm glad. I'm glad Bud got the memo. Hawks fans know his, oh, his shortcomings well, but I'm glad he finally got the the memo that some maybe something needs to change with the offense but but might be a, a free agent coach in the next uh, week or so we'll see well but, you know there are a lot of coaching vacancies out there so there are there are a few yeah, and uh, good market yeah well anyway thank you ben for joining me uh we will do this again uh i'm sure we'll talk playoffs either if, if you know, hawks or not in the uh the coming days i know you uh, helped me out quite a bit talking about the playoffs last year in a uh hawks uh no, in a world that had no Hawks games for like 10 months. I really appreciated that help. But thank you for joining me as always. Please follow Ben's work. He occasionally tweets like once a week, um, but you can find his work on Twitter as well. Um, that was a shot at you, Ben, but that's okay. Um, at Bladder underscore. I'm happy to take it. Happy at at Bladder underscore is the uh, place to find you, I believe. I think that's it. Okay. Yeah. You think? <laughs> ben lost his password to his Twitter account. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Haven't logged in in weeks. Yeah. Uh, all right, man. Well, thank you. As for everybody else, please subscribe to the show. Check out Ben's work, including his written stuff and podcast. And we'll see you after game three in this very same space. <laughs>